Welcome to the world of wellness, your one-stop shop for education, inspiration, and practical tools to build a healthy, sustainable, holistic lifestyle. I'm your host, Megan Zucker, and together we're gonna get fit, feel good, and have fun. Let's do this. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the World of Wellness podcast. I'm always excited to be here, and I'm also excited to be here via video with you guys. So today we have a special guest, Elizabeth Kristoff, and honestly, I just love this interview with Elizabeth. It was so eye-opening and very informative, and you guys will also love it too. I will introduce Elizabeth for you. She is an expert. Elizabeth Kristoff is an expert in using applied neurology to move people out of pain and unweighted behavior and stress response. So she is the founder of Brain-Based Wellness, and it's an online platform that trains the nervous system and the body to resolve old patterns, improve performance, and increase the well-being. Um, Elizabeth is a certified applied neurology practitioner who has been in the movement and wellness industry since 2007. She works with entrepreneurs, athletes, leaders, creatives to improve their resilience, manage stress, and regulate their emotions through intentional science-based brain training. And her research and work with hundreds of clients has taught her that healing and change must occur in both the body and the mind, and that the body and mind and nervous system are unique. Each and every one is unique. And more importantly, with the right tools, we are capable of healing. So without further ado, let's welcome Elizabeth Kristoff. All right. Today we have Elizabeth Kristoff on the podcast today. Elizabeth, thanks for coming. Thank Uh, you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. So why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, my name's Elizabeth. I'm the founder of Brain-Based Wellness, which is a virtual platform that trains the nervous system, trains the different input systems to the nervous system so that you can experience a a new and different output. So whether you're trying to achieve like behavior change, athletic performance, um, moving out of disordered eating, moving out of chronic pain, we really put the nervous system as the operating system at the center of everything. And how can we heal the deficits in the nervous system and provide ourselves with new tools for self-regulation and and healing at that level to achieve change, not just in our cognitive mind, but in in our body and our nervous system, and then in the external world from there. I'm so excited already because I've been learning a lot recently about emotions in our nervous system and for us to be able to get into our subconscious and to be able to dig into those emotions. Like we have to relax the nervous system, but then the nervous system gets all wound up because it wants to protect ourselves and look for danger. So let's kind of do an overview of the nervous system and really what it's responsible for. 
Yeah, I'd love to. And what you just said is like exactly what we do on the site. It's exactly what we focus on creating safety and regulation in the body so that you can then process emotions, move those emotions through the body, and then create expansion in your life without triggering threat patterns, without moving into dysregulation and threat. And so it's really cool that you're looking at all of that. And I'm just really excited to dive into this conversation (laughs) with you. Um, It's awesome. So the nervous system is basically our operating system. It's your brain, it's your brain stem and all of your peripheral nerves that go through your body. And it is responsible for regulating our body, regulating all of the processes that happen inside of our body. So there is a part of your nervous system called your autonomic nervous system. And that's all the things that happen without your conscious awareness. So like your heart beating, your stomach digesting food, your organ function, the amount of tension you hold in your muscles, your respiration when you're not consciously thinking about it. And that part of your nervous system is controlled mostly by your brainstem, by the old brain. And its primary job is your survival. So that's really important to understand that our, our brain's primary job is our survival. And it's always taking in information from the world around us, making a decision safe or unsafe, and then producing an output that is a response to that decision. And then that part of the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system has two components as well. It has your sympathetic, which is your arousal network, your fight and flight, the thing that's preparing you to take action when you need to. And then it has your parasympathetic, which is your rest and digest, your calm and respond. It's what brings you out of that state of arousal into a place where you can rest and recover. And a healthy nervous system is able to oscillate between those states. We never are really just in one state. We're always kind of moving in between them. And you want to have your sympathetic nervous system active sometimes if you're going to work out, if you need to take action, if you need to really perform, if you need to have a lot of strength, big muscle contraction. And then you, but you want to be able to move out of that into a calm and restful state so that you can recover, so that your body can heal and and you can have a sense of well being and safety. And what happens for a lot of us is, you know, whether that's through experiencing trauma or just chronic stress in your life over time, is that we get stuck in that state of high stress, that sympathetic nervous system response, too much fight and flight, which will then maybe even push us into freeze, which is dissociation, shutdown, brain fog. And we, we need to learn how to regulate so that we can come down out of that state so that we can create safety in the body. And then we can do the things that maybe are challenging to us being visible, growing our business, having intimate relationships, moving out of old patterns without creating that stuck state of sympathetic threat response that over time can become actually very dangerous to the body. It's too much stress hormones, causes inflammation, autoimmune issues, and a a disease state inside of the body. So I had an experience last week where I did a hypnotherapy session with, um, her, her name's Sarah Raymond. And she took me through like a a guided state. And then she, I was sitting there and she goes, what is your body telling you right now? It was like, open my eyes and look for danger. So like that Mm -hmm. is, I think that's me. And I know, I know that's me wound up into my sympathetic, that fight or flight mode. So how do we intentionally get out of the sympathetic mode? Because even like, say you're sitting down to do like a meditation or something, or you're trying to relax and maybe our form of relaxing is like 
watching TV, but that's not actually getting into our sympathetic state. So, or our parasympathetic. So how do we wind out of this high stress? I need to survive mode. So that's a great question because just like you said, a lot of times, even something like meditation that people will say like, Oh, if you want to calm down, go meditate. But if you're someone who's stuck in that state of hypervigilance in that threat state, it can actually feel really threatening to sit and close your eyes. It could actually end up triggering flashbacks. You might feel that your heart starts to race, your mouth dries out, your muscles tense up and, and everybody's nervous system is unique and not all the same tools work for the same people. And if we're moving into that threat response by doing something like, oh, meditate, sit in the room with your eyes closed, and that doesn't feel safe, then we're actually moving ourselves more into that high threat state more of the time. And we don't want to do that. So what we do on the site and what I do with my clients is we learn really practical tools to work directly with the system. And we also learn how to be the expert of your own nervous system. Is this particular neural exercise actually having a positive effect on me? Is it the right amount of stimulus to affect the change that I want? And how do I start to learn what works for my nervous system to bring me into that state? What is the input that I need to create that? So a lot of times it's visual exercises, not like visualization, but actual exercises for your eyes, training your eyes and in their different skills, moving your eyes through um, different ranges of motion and strengthening and stretching the muscles surrounding the eyes. Sometimes it's exercises that work with the balance system inside of the inner ear, which is Mm -hmm. your vestibular system Mm -hmm. orients you with the horizon. So that's another input system. Sometimes it's body mapping, like sensory stimulus and just creating a clearer map of where your body is in space. Your brain has a better understanding of, of where you are in the world around you and then feel safer on a second by second basis. And then a lot of our regulation drills have to do with upregulating the vagus nerve, which is a really important cranial nerve that runs from your brainstem all the way down into your pelvis. And it tells your brain what's going on inside of your body, tells your brain about what's happening inside of you with your organs, with your breath, with your heart. And it's a very important nerve to keep healthy and regulated for our parasympathetic, for that common respond response. And then the final thing we do is respiration training, respiration drills, so that we're becoming better, more efficient breathers. We're able to diaphragmatically breathe and we're able to take nice long exhales and move out of a variety of different ways of breathing so that we're having the right breath for the activity that's going on at the time. Mm -hmm. And if we can make our breath patterns more efficient and more regulated, then our nervous system feels safer on a second by second basis with all of those breaths that we take every day. And we start to have a new baseline level of threat for the nervous system. So I kind of want to break down all of those because you said a lot of good stuff here. Um, And the first place that I want to start is with how does the eye positioning help relax us? Like, how does that work? Yeah. So there's different types of, of eye training, like there's EMDR and stuff like that. But what we do on the site is... As a functional neurology practitioner, I I focus on training the different input systems that are providing information to your brain. And your visual system is at the top of your neural hierarchy. And all that that means is just a fancy way to say that your brain thinks the information coming from your eyes is really important. It puts a lot of weight in that information. And our eyes 
are trainable like everything else. There's a bunch of skills that we need to have with our visual system. We need to be able to focus on things far away. We need to be able to get information in from the periphery of our eyes. We need to be able to move our eyes smoothly in all different directions. There are six muscles surrounding the eyes and those muscles need to be moved and strengthened and stretched just like any other muscle in the body. But the problem is that in our modern world, we don't do a lot of those visual skills. We're sitting here looking at a focus point, usually that's about two to six feet away from our face. We're sitting in our computers a lot, focusing in a near range of motion, and our eyes just don't get the movement and the stimulus that they need. But every Thing is a skill and every skill is trainable. And so if we can start to train those different skills of the visual system, you can actually train yourself into better vision. I have a lot of clients that stop wearing glasses that are able to start driving again at night just because they train their eyes. And so as that information coming in from the eyes is clear, more high quality information, then your brain feels safer on a second by second basis doing its primary job, which is making predictions to keep you alive. So if we can heal those visual deficits, then your brain is better able to make predictions and produce an output that is then not protective, but more performance-based. So basically we're designed to be able to take in a lot of things and our body and our brain knows if we're not functioning at its best. And then that shows up as something like anxiety or stress because it's not sure everything that's going on. So then it kind of puts us into that fight or flight mode. That's exactly right. If you think of your nervous system, I mean, yeah, you're so wow. you're so good. You're so on it. Um, and if you think of your nervous system as a bucket, all of your life stress goes into that bucket. Exercise is a stress. Relationships cause stress. Financial stress. Um, the stress of a pandemic, the stress of any kind of change, all pouring into the bucket. But in addition to that, what is also pouring into the bucket is stress is any deficit you might have in your visual system, anything you might have with your respiration, any problems you might have with body mapping, any problems you might have with that balance system in your inner ear, all of that is adding stress into the bucket all the time. And our brains, our nervous system, our bodies are intelligent and they understand that staying in that high stress state for too long is dangerous. We're resilient and we're meant to handle a little bit of stress. You need it for adaptation. But when the water level in that bucket gets too high, your brain and your system are like, no, this is leading to too much cortisol damaging the vessels, damaging the nerves, and we need to do something to shut this off. So your, your system, your nervous system in your brain will start to produce a protective output, something that gets you to reduce the amount of stimulus coming in and keep you safe. And so that could look like anything like pain. Pain is a great protective output of your brain that will get you to take smaller steps, work out with less intensity, engage with the world less. It could also look like dizziness, nausea, fatigue, depression, Anything that maybe is a migraine going to get you to go to your bed, pull the covers over your head, block out the stimulus coming in and stay safe because that's what your brain perceives is the most important thing in that moment. Not your long-term goals, but your safety right then. <laughs> There's so much here. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, okay. 
so I'm really excited about it. So also what I hear you saying is our body wants us to keep us safe in any way, shape or form. So then that might be why if we're overstimulated or even understimulated that we mm-hmm. might want to do easy things. Like if your body's perceiving a threat, it might go, I actually, this is going to tie into one of the questions I had for you, but it actually just made me think of yesterday. Like yesterday I was tired and I was craving like a cinnamon roll. <laughs> right. So I, my body's my logical deduction was that like my body's tired. It wants me to have extra calories to be able to stay in for later, um, to protect me in case I need to run or do something. I have a surplus of calories to where I can utilize them. So how does, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So is that, was that, was, is that what's happening? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody's different. There's when we get to eating, it gets to be, there's a lot of different layers to that with like stress eating and emotional eating and subconscious narratives. But I think in the case that you were describing, yes, 100%, your body needed more energy to have as reserve because you were depleted and it was craving that glucose so that it knew that you could keep yourself safe. Should you need it? Yeah. So how, how does, how does stress eating relate to the nervous system? Like, can you, can we talk more about that? But I mean, mine was one example, but I think that there's probably an array of different things we can use with this. Yeah. So sometimes we have cravings like yours, where it's like really just our body telling us I need something, right? Maybe our adrenals are fatigued. So we need a little bit of chocolate. And sometimes those cravings are our body really speaking to us in in terms of what we need. But for a lot of us, there's two other main components that lead to disordered eating. So if you're somebody who is struggling with that, um, there's stress eating, which is very very like in real time, your body is using food to reduce your stress. So like we call it stress eating and we don't even really think about that, Mm -hmm. but food can be a great self-regulation tool for a nervous system. That's stuck in too much sympathetic fight and flight stress response. Mm -hmm. I have been a binge eater my whole life. It started at a very early age. I have a lot of childhood trauma and I used food as a tool to help me move out of that high stress state. And I didn't realize this until just a couple of years ago, but there was a real moment where I felt a profound flood of gratitude for having food as a self-regulation tool, because there's a lot of research that shows that people with high ACE scores, adverse childhood experiences later in life, develop disease, cancer, autoimmune, um, mental health disorders. And that is because their nervous system is dysregulated for so long because of the events of childhood. And so you lead to all these stress hormones in this high stress state for a long period of time that creates disease in the body. But I, I learned as a young child, if I eat a bunch of food, I'll push past the other signals. My body is giving me, I trained as an athlete. I've always been hard driving. And so my body would maybe give me other signals first, like a little bit of pain or a little bit of fatigue, but I'm just going to push through that. But then what would happen is I would push myself into a binge and it would almost be like a blackout. I would just be eating everything that was there. And then I would rest. It would upregulate my 
rest and digest part of my nervous system. It gave my vagus nerve a big boost of stimulus. It stimulated important areas of my brain, like my insular cortex that really needed some activation. And it was helping to regulate my system. And so when I would push through into too much stress for too long, whether that was because of held trauma, whether that was because of my workaholism, whether that was because of just chronic stress in some other area of my life, food became a self-regulation tool. And I couldn't stop that behavior until I learned new tools to help me regulate the system so that I didn't have to rely on that. It's really interesting. And I, I tying this back to myself again, because I've had the awareness within the last week. So that happened, but like this whole past week, I've just been like wanting food. And I, I was like, you know, obviously thinking about it because I'm like, this isn't how I normally eat. I know this isn't like what got me into the, the shape I'm in. So I started asking myself, like, what are you trying to fill? Like, what kind of void are you trying to fill? And I, now that you say that, that makes me think it's like me wanting to feel safe because I have just gone through a huge move and being in a new home and, and my body's like, you need to feel like you can relax here. So then it, I guess that makes sense for me wanting to eat. Yes, a lot of food. <laughs> absolutely. Moving and changing your environment is one of the biggest stresses you can have changes, very threatening to the brain because it functions on pattern recognition mm-hmm. and it uses those patterns to make the predictions that it uses to keep you alive. So any change, whether it's good or bad is threatening to the brain. So a move is huge and it can also bring up old old feelings, old emotions, old unprocessed things that happened with changes of environment or feelings of displacement or whatever that might've happened in childhood. And so it's, it's heavy, it's loaded and it can be very dysregulating. And so it makes a lot of sense that your body is trying to create safety and self-regulate with food. So I, I mean, I'm just a good example here today, but like, so I'm aware of that. Right. So then what, what are, what do you have to do to then like move through that? Because that can be something that I do all the time. And especially when, you know, you're in a corporate job, if you're an executive, if you're running your own business, like, even if you're like a parent, you have to take risks and you have to be vulnerable. And I'm sure all of those things can trigger that response. So, and I think it's something that a lot of people struggle with, you know, I I think overeating is a huge deal for people and they, you know, it's, it's like a comfort. So we're aware of it. So then how do we actually change it? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a couple of things I want to touch on. One is that there's another component, which is the emotional eating. So we should come back to that. But as far as the stress eating goes, what I think is most important is first, we have to learn to start to identify the signals that our body is giving us. So our body will speak quietly to us at first. It's always talking to us. It'll speak quietly at first. If it doesn't get our attention and get what it's needed, it'll get louder and louder and louder until we do something to change our behavior. And all of our behaviors are our brain's best bet at either getting the stimulus that it needs or getting the tools that it needs for regulation. So we have to look at our behavior with that mindset of curiosity and be like, can I listen to what my body's saying to me early on? And can I start to learn new tools to give it what it needs? Like, what does it need for me in this situation? Okay. 
So right there with what you're saying, and I'm sorry that I keep drawing examples to myself, no, no, but like great. I have when I, when I'm, and I think it probably is relatable too for me to talk about myself here in this sense too, but Absolutely. I have a hard time like feeling my emotions. Like, and I know if I don't want to feel my emotions, like I will watch TV, like I will you do something to distract myself from feeling my body. So you're talking about listening to our body better. Like how, how it's, it's, I guess like, how do we do that one? And then how do we move through that fear of actually listening to our body and the fear of like, Oh my God, what's going to come up if I do feel how I'm feeling and actually acknowledge what my body's telling me. So the first most important thing is always creating safety in the body. We, we, especially if you come from trauma, it can, you're absolutely right. Feel very threatening to come into the body and start to listen to the signals, to feel the felt sense, to feel the sensations. And so that is what I first and foremost use applied neurology for is to create regulation and safety in the body so that all the rest of this becomes possible because I can't ask people to drop from their head down into their body and look with curiosity and like, how does it feel in your chest? How does it feel in your stomach? If that feels scary to somebody who left their body a long time ago as a protective mechanism. And so really the first thing is teaching people a couple high payoff drills that make them feel safe and grounded. And I have a free video series on my site. So if you go to brainbase-wellness.com, there's a video series that'll teach five or six exercises, neural exercises that are usually really high payoff for a large number of my clients that will help people just start to feel this in their body and learn how to self-regulate through using these tools. But a, a really simple one is to stimulate the vagus nerve a little bit. And the vagus nerve innervates the back of the tongue. That's one of the places where it innervates. So one of the things that I do when I'm starting to feel stressed out is I do tongue circles. I take my tongue over my teeth under my lips. And I make a big circle with my tongue, trying to go a little bit further back each time I'll do like five in one direction, five in the other direction, take a couple of breaths in with nice long exhales, focusing on long, relaxed exhales, and then see if that just that can bring my body down out of that heightened state enough to make a change in my behavior. So it's really learning very practical neural exercises to start to feel safe in the body. And then even before I'll do something like practice reading the signals inside of my body, I do some neural exercises that my nervous system responds really well to. Maybe it's a visual exercise, vision exercise, maybe it's a balance one, maybe it's tongue circles. And then I drop down into my body. And then I re-regulate with a couple neuro exercises, a little bit of stimulus that my body responds really well to so that I'm continuing to teach my system, my nervous system, my brain, my body, that it is safe to feel those signals, that it's safe to drop into my body. And then it becomes more possible for me to start to recognize the signals that it's sending me early on so that I can feel like for me, I get a little bit of pain in my left knee side of an old injury. Sometimes I get 
tension in the right side of my jaw. I'll start to feel a little bit of a headache coming on and I get heavy. And when I start to feel that, I know if I don't stop and do something right now, whether that's neuro drills or take a bath or go for a walk or jump on my trampoline, something that my nervous system likes, then I'm going to push myself into a binge. And once I get that dysregulated and that far into it, there's then it's, it's I can't stop it at that point. It's what I have to do to, to regulate. So if I can start to make it safe to hear those signals early on, then I can really change the behavior. So it sounds like you have fun, <laughs> like to, re- to regulate the nervous system, because I mean, you're, you, when you said jumping on a trampoline, and then you also said things like take a bath or go for a walk, like those all sound like really enjoyable activities. And it sounds like almost a form of play to help calm us down. And I think that's a huge thing, um, is, is like letting us like playing is I think a form of relaxing almost like it might be like physically active, but it's still kind of getting into that, the, like almost like a child, right? Like bringing in the loving your inner child in that sense. And I know a lot of like, a lot of trauma is and working through this kind of stuff is healing your wounds from a child, as you've said before, with the trauma. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the vagus nerve, and I'm so happy that you even mentioned it. Um, I always loved learning about the vagus nerve from studying breathing. So I know that the vagus nerve basically, tell me if I'm wrong too, innervates all of the organs in the body, like comes from the brainstem and goes all the way down. Correct. Um, so Mm -hmm. why don't you talk about why that's so important to stimulate and then also, um, and then how that can relate to our getting into our parasympathetic nervous system and then also other ways that we can stimulate it. Sure. So the vagus nerve, there's a, there's quite a few different nerves that innervate the different organs, but the vagus nerve, it is primarily responsible for taking the information from your organs up to your brain. So like it tells your brain what's going on with my heart, what's going on with my diaphragm, what's going on with my liver, what's going on with my stomach. Right. And so it's part, it's a key, key player in this system in your body called your interoceptive system. And again, big word, but just means, Hey brain, what's going on inside. And there is a ton of research that shows that people who have depression, PTSD, disordered eating, body dysmorphia have an issue with their interoceptive system. And primarily it's not just that they can't read the signals coming in from their body. It's not that they've like lost that felt sense, although that's part of it because we dissociate, but a big part of it is that they don't have interceptive accuracy, which means that their brain is interpreting too much threat where there isn't any. So your brain is reading those signals from inside your body as too threatening. The accuracy of your interceptive system is off. And I believe from research, but also just kind of putting the pieces of the puzzle together. I know that when we get stuck in our sympathetic nervous system response, we pump out a lot of cortisol. And when we have cortisol pumping through our body for a long time, it damages our nerves, damages our blood vessels too, but it damages the nerves. And so I believe that when we get stuck in that sympathetic response for too long, we damage our vagus nerve as, as one of the main nerves. And then that signal from our body up to our brain gets disrupted. And 
And then certain areas of the brain, especially your insular cortex, that's a key player in your interceptive system, don't get enough stimulus and activation. And so now you're not getting great signals from your body. It's blurry and confusing, and that's very threatening to your brain. And then parts of your brain that are important are not getting stimulus and activation. And every cell of our brain, every neuron wants to stay healthy, active, and alive. And so it's going to drive your behavior to try to get the stimulus that it needs. So if your insular cortex is like, hey, I need a lot more fuel, blood supply, oxygen coming to me. A great way to do that is to eat a bunch of food because it will stimulate your celiac celiac plexus, your vagus nerve, and then your insular cortex will get lit up. Another way is to drink alcohol. And so your brain is driving these behaviors to get the stimulus that it needs. And it's also causing problems in anxiety and in overactive threat response because it's not able to clearly, accurately read what's going on inside of you. So basically when we, and we can talk about this next too. So basically when we emotional eat or we think like, oh, the way that I'm going to relax is I'm going to go have a cocktail and a nice dinner. That's just, oh, it is technically a way for us to relax the body, but it's just not the healthiest thing. That's probably causing more damage. And we don't know how to sit with ourselves or we don't have the tools to regulate ourselves whatever reason that might be, whether it's fear of actually doing that, or we just don't know, maybe it's like an intuitive thing that, okay, this warm, cozy food and this alcohol is going to get me out of that thinking brain and get that stimulated. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's just the tool that our brain has found that works. And so we have to find new tools. And then when it comes to emotional eating, there's another component to that and it's related, right? And that emotions are very threatening to our patterns, to our inner child, to our to ourselves. And so then that drives us into that stress state because we live in a really emotionally, in a society that is not okay with emotions being expressed. And so we learn at an early age that like, if you express too much anger or sadness or whatever, you might be punished. You might be isolated. You might be sent to your room. You might just sense the stress that that's putting on your caregiver. You know, you might sense their dysregulation. And so we bake in these deep beliefs in order to ensure that we don't get abandoned, that we don't get punished, that we don't somehow lose the care that we need to survive that look like my emotions are too big. Expressing my emotions is dangerous. Um, I will be punished if I express my anger. And then all of our society keeps reinforcing that as we grow up, you know, you don't want to be the angry woman. You don't want to be weak and sad. You don't want to be too much for people. And so we suppress all of that. And we become very, very scared at a subconscious level of tapping into really feeling those big emotions and expressing them. We, un, we I think our, our animal bodies intuitively know how to express those emotions and move them through. And emotions are meant to be expressed through the body. That's very natural. But we, we unlearn how to do that. We civilize ourselves out of being able to express our emotions. We hold all of that energy inside, and then we become 
very, very scared at the level of our frontal lobe of allowing ourselves to feel, to express, to emote, and to process those emotions. And so eating as well as overthinking, overwhelm, anxiety can all be distractive mechanisms to keep us from, from feeling and experiencing those emotions. So I've always believed this. I've always, I've one of my favorite books. I don't know if you've read this, but anatomy of the spirit by Carolyn miss. Have you ever read that book? I haven't. Oh, okay. Well in this book, this is leading to my question. They correlate all of the certain types of physical pain within emotion and how does that work? How, how do we, I know, I think it's true, but how, how stress is held in the body? Like, how does that, how does that happen? And why does that happen? And how, how, why does that happen? I guess. And what's the correlation between the two? So from a functional neurology perspective, pain is always, not always, well, always pain is always an output, not an input, right? So our, our, we're not getting, there's no such thing as a pain receptor. There's a nociceptor, which, which processes and receives threat. Mm -hmm. So like if something's really hot, if something's sharp, if something's, if there's an acute injury going on, our nociceptors will take that information up to the brain, but it's not necessarily saying pain. It's just saying threat. And then our brain takes in that information, decides how threatening it is and what output it needs to produce to protect us. And a great protective output is pain because it will get us to, again, interact with the world less, take smaller steps, be more careful. And so if we're under a high stress level, pain is an output that's trying to get us to change our behavior, to reduce the amount of stress coming in. And sometimes that stress is coming from an acute injury, tissue damage. Um, if you cut yourself, whatever, then you know it's getting you to take action to deal with the injury. But a lot of times it's just using an old, well-worn pathway to express pain so that you do something to reduce the amount of stress coming in. And pain is also a beautiful way to distract you from looking at a big, scary emotion that you do not feel safe to express. So if we are repressing a lot of anger, if we are repressing a lot of grief, if we are repressing, um, the emotions that are deemed like less acceptable, like jealousy or, you know, any of those emotions that we view of as, as negative, then one of the things that happens when we start to experience that, but we don't want to look at it, we want to shove it back down. And our brain is like, distract, don't feel this, don't look at it is to create an output that will keep you from, from seeing it, which can be pain. Wow. So basically there's an emotional pain that our brain doesn't want to look at. So then it basically tricks us into feeling a pain that's physical so that we don't look at the emotional root of it. That seems safer. It seems less likely that we will be abandoned, rejected, die for some reason by not getting our survival needs met to experience the physical pain over the emotional pain at the wow. level of the subconscious mind. Well, so then, 
So do you think that then healing the physical pain also helps heal the emotional pain? Does the emotional pain come out of the physical pain? I think it, in my experience, you have to start to process the emotions. You have to create safety in the body and then intentionally follow the, the signals back, feel the emotion, express the anger. You know, I do a lot of screaming into pillows or, you know, doing neuro drills to make myself feel safe and calm and regulated. And then I use a lot of EFT tapping. I pull stuff up and I express it. And then I re-regulate after with neuro drills, whether that's grief or anger or jealousy, like diving into the emotion, letting it be expressed. Maybe it's a page purge, just writing it out. Because in my experience, if we don't actually go to the emotion, express it, feel it, be with it, the we might do stuff to resolve the pain, but it will start then to just present somewhere else. Mm. Um, it'll migrate the pain. Will, you know, my shoulder hurts. Now my knee hurts. Now my neck hurts. And it's like, well, I'm definitely not acutely injured in all these places. So what's really going on here. And the same thing with nausea, with extreme chronic fatigue. A lot of times when I, I have autoimmune, I have celiac. And when I was first starting to practice expressing my emotions, I started to get really strong autoimmune flare-ups. I started to get swelling in my joints, eczema. I would feel very heavy, very fatigued. I would get a migraine. And I realized like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to dive into these emotions, but my body doesn't feel safe yet. So I had to learn a lot of tools to regulate my body, to work with the nervous system. And then in minimum effective dose, start with like a 30 seconds of grief practice, like just practice allowing myself to feel the grief to sit with it, to breathe into where I feel it in the body just for 30 seconds and then re-regulate with more tools and then build onto there gradually so that I don't have to experience this really intense protective response. I've tried, <laughs> I've tried to I've, I've actually never set a timer, which I probably should of like letting myself process the emotion, but, but I find it hard to stop sometimes. Like once I start feeling the emotion, like I want to, I don't know if I want, maybe, maybe it's a way of wanting to feel it to protect myself. I don't know, but like I'll start processing something and I will feel it. And I sometimes will let it take me on for days. Um, I think that's normal that people do that. So is it again, yeah. I'm just like the, like, how do you stop that? And it's sometimes it's almost like addicting, like the feeling that you get from like crying, like, you know, like it feels good to release it, but then how do you, how do you stop it? You know what I mean? Yeah. I think it might actually be great that you let yourself do that yeah. for a few days until yeah. it just naturally resolves on its own. Um, but I do think people have that fear that like, once I opened the door to this, I'm never going to be able to come back out of it again. You know, once I like take the lid off this anger, like I'm going to become an angry person. Or once I, I dive into this well of grief, like I will be consumed by it and never be able to function again. And that's, that's not true. Like our emotions are, Emotions are physiological things that happen in the body. They're energetic expressions moving through the body. And, and 
really, if we allow ourselves to process them, that's actually how they go away. Like if we actually allow ourselves to express it rather than carrying it around inside of us, then we don't become emotionally reactive or erupt in anger when it's inappropriate because we've let that anger process through in a safe place. And I would say like, if you have the capacity to, to be with it for the amount of time that it takes to naturally resolve, I actually think that's great and beautiful. And it's okay to be sad for a couple of days, but if you find like, I really need some help in, I, I don't, I don't, it's not appropriate for me to stay here for a few days. I have things to do. I have a family I need to show up for. I need to whatever. Then I would say like learning some tools to work with your nervous system so that you give yourself some time to be with it. And then you start to do things that just make you feel really calm and make you feel grounded, maybe doing some sensory stimulus for your feet, maybe doing some vagus nerve activation, maybe doing a little bit of respiration training, getting some good movement in. movement will help accelerate that moving of the emotion through movement that your body likes. Um, and then other things that are just generally well-known to help the nervous system regulate, be in no nature, ground with your feet on the earth, have a good conversation with a friend that always makes you laugh. Um, you know, do, do things that help support you in coming out of it and know that you have those tools at your disposal to help you through that situation. How do we not identify with our emotions? Because I I've seen people who like, they have a trauma happen to them, but then like, that's their story. That's who they are. They'll tell you that within the first three minutes of meeting you and they don't let you forget it any, every single time. Like, so how do we, how do we, how do we move through I, making that our identity, I guess? Cause that, I know that happens. Yeah. I think it happens a lot. I think it happened for me a lot, you know, as I started to uncover my own trauma that I'd been dissociated from and forgotten for so long. I think initially I needed, I needed that a little bit to be able to feel seen and heard and validated in my experience. But then it reaches a point too, where it's like, yeah, I don't want this to be my identity. I don't want to be healing from my trauma for the rest of my life. I want to expand and grow and heal and move beyond it into, you know, trauma it can be a beautiful portal into awakening and into expanding our consciousness. But I, I want to actually move through that portal and not stay stuck in like reliving the trauma over and over again. And so I think for me and for my clients, how, how do we move through that is yes, there's some components of like telling your story and being heard and, and re reliving that at a cognitive level. But a lot of it is like, I don't have to keep retelling this. I don't have to keep re-traumatizing myself. I can move this through my body. I can express these emotions and I can liberate myself from this pattern by creating new patterns in my body. And it's not mine to hold on to forever. It's possible to move beyond it. And when I don't need to anymore, then I, I don't have to keep re-traumatizing myself. Um, something that I learned recently, or like a word switch, instead of like reliving the trauma when you're processing through it, of like reviewing it, like you're watching a movie. That way, like you're you're you can logically see what's happening rather than getting that physiological reaction out of it. So you can see, oh, that was how I was feeling. That is why I feel like this to kind of get like a almost like a bird eye perspective on it. Yeah, absolutely. Changing the perspective on it, doing things as your 
as you're revisiting it that calm your nervous system and create a different internal state so that you don't have to re-experience that same physiological state as you're doing it. So a lot of times I'll use EFT tapping and then go back and like tap for that version of myself and allow her to express whatever she didn't get to express at the time to say what she needs to, but then I'm processing that stress through with the tapping, with some vagus nerve stimulus, with nice long exhales, maybe even with some eye movements as I'm doing it. So that I'm creating a, a felt sense of safety and well-being as I'm expressing what I needed to express and then really changing, you know, I'm pulling it out from the subconscious into the conscious, but I'm also changing the way the experience of it in my body, in my physiology, the patterning of it so that I'm creating a new pattern and not just repeating the same thing over and over again. Okay. I have two questions here. One, I want to ask you about the tapping because in my perspective, what tapping does is that like, you're like, I'm here, like I'm, it's okay. Like I'm, I'm here, but like, what is that actually doing? Like what, what, like what, I guess, what is it really? Cause I've heard of it. I've never actually done it, but just from what you were saying, like if I'm touching myself, tapping myself, I'm like, okay, you're here, you're fine. You're good. (laughs) But what, what is it? So EFT tapping stands for emotional freedom technique. And um, it is based on tapping different acupressure points to move energy through the body. So it's um, there's certain points that are on different meridians that help your body move energy through from a more like ancient medicine perspective. Um, So that would be like the traditional narrative of what tapping does is it stimulates different acupressure points to move the energy through the body and to calm the nervous system as you're doing that from an applied neurology perspective, from a functional neurology perspective, it's sensory stimulus. It's, it's creating vibration and sensory stimulus on the skin, giving your brain a clearer map of where your body is in space. I use a lot of vibration, sometimes vibrating toothbrush. Sometimes I have a little handheld object called a Z vibe. You can use a handheld massager, trace the outline of your hand in space, trace your foot in space and use that vibratory stimulus to create a clearer map of where your body is Mm -hmm. to give better input to your brain so that it feels safer on a second by second basis making predictions, knowing where you are knowing the world around you. So I, I think for me, it's both. I see it as both. Like I, I definitely honor the fact that it is, it is working with the meridians and with the energy system. And it's also providing more stimulus to the nervous system, um, to the mechanoreceptors in the joints, to the sensory receptors on the skin and helping you to ground and stay present. Yeah. Do you think I mean, do you think that this whole concept of healing our trauma and healing our bodies, do you think that this is becoming more accepted of things to do? And I guess the other question along with that is like, how do we make it more of a norm that we can like talk about this kind of thing and like be safe with it, if that makes sense, because I think more and more people are starting to do it based upon my perspective. And I'm even like starting to teach more of like, like becoming aware of the way that you're thinking and like, see what comes up in that sense. So how do we make this more of a normalized thing? And is it becoming more normalized in your perspective? 
I think that it is. I hope that it is. I don't know if it really is, or if I'm just so entrenched in the world of somatics yeah. that I feel like it is that I feel yeah. like, oh yeah, everybody's talking about this. I, I My greatest hope is that I will be able to contribute to that conversation to amplify that conversation. It, it's very important to me. Like my life experience led me to to really see that. I had some pretty intense experiences a couple of years ago where it was like the veil was lifted for me and it just became very clear because of the intense nature of the experiences. I was in a really stressful time in my own life. I had to dissolve my partnership shares in a business that I'd had for 12 years, lost my community. I was very financially unstable and all of that high stress started to bring back my childhood trauma. And then my my romantic partner at the time was the very same week I dissolved my partnership shares was diagnosed with a really rare cancer around his heart. And I went into being a full-time caretaker for him. And I started to experience all these really severe outputs of my nervous system as I was going through that time. And then also he had PTSD leading up to the cancer diagnosis and I was trying to understand what was going on for him. And so I had this background of applied neurology. I'd been practicing that since like 2015. So I understood a lot about the nervous system, but now I was like seeing it all happen in me in real time, in response to behavior, in response to stress. And I was seeing it happen in him. And I started reading these books, like The Body Keeps the Score, Waking the Tiger, When the Body Says No by Gabor Mate. And, and everything just started to click into place for me, combining that with my applied neurology background. And I had a really deep understanding, like, why? Why did I have autoimmune, even though I was this really healthy, sober person who worked out daily and ate really well? Why did he get cancer at the age of 39 when he also was sober and ate really well and exercised? Like, what is happening? And it just became very, very clear to me, the link between nervous system dysregulation and disease. Wow. And before the nervous system dysregulation, the, the emotions, the trauma patterns, and the things that get stuck in our body, I started learning about ACE scores and the link between that and disease later in life and addiction. And so I really believe it's so critical that as a society, we start to awaken to these patterns, to these connections, and that there are a lot of resources out there. I think the conversation is, is growing. And I hope that more people will find their way to that because it really, it's, it's scary to look at some of it at first. Like you were saying, like, how do we make that safe? It does. It feels scary to look at that. And like, am I causing disease? Like what's happening? Um, but at the same time, it also offers opportunity for if this is the case, then then we have some agency over learning tools to regulate ourselves, learning ways to process this through the body and to experiencing a different outcome. We're not doomed to keep moving into these states. Yeah, I just learned this stat a couple weeks ago that 90 to 95% of all diseases are from faulty lifestyles. And based upon the, everything that you're saying, you know, I think of lifestyle like diet and exercise, but I didn't even think about the other aspect of like the, um, nervous system of like how, how are maybe the way that we are styling the way that we take care of our nervous system and our thinking and the thinking around all the events that are happened to us. And it, it just clicked to me that like, that's part of the lifestyle. It's not just, it's not just yeah. eating and drinking, right. Or in moving. Um, Absolutely. 
Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> the way our, our lifestyle is set up is pretty dysregulating. Like we don't get enough movement. We don't have a lot of time out in nature. We've all been pretty isolated over the past two years with the pandemic. You know, we're social animals and we're meant to co-regulate. And so there's a lot of components to lifestyle that can be dysregulating. And then a lot of those behavior choices with the food and the sleep and the, uh, you know, we all know what we should eat. We don't need more information about that. We all know we should get sleep. We all know we should get movement, but it's not possible sometimes if we're living in this really dysregulated state where we don't feel safe in our own body to make these changes and to act differently and to move into new behaviors without without the tools to, to work with our nervous system. And that the ultimate thing beneath all of that disease state is stress is chronic stress. Yeah. Well, I think that you and I having conversations like this also start to make it more normal. And it's just so interesting, like my last couple conversations and even just, just the way the flow of life, like all of my meditations recently have been about like finding a spot in my childhood where like, I did not feel safe and like going as like who I am now to go make that person feel safe so I can heal that self so that I can heal myself and transform myself. And I think I, it's a scary thing to do, but I think the more that we talk about it, the more it normalizes things and it'll help other people feel comfortable that like they'll get through it too. And they can experience profound healing by doing it. Isn't that crazy? Like that's really what we have to do is like, be courageous and vulnerable with ourselves to face ourselves. That's it. Exactly. And to know that we have the power inside of us, just like you were saying, to bring that healing to that other fragment of ourself that is still there feeling unsafe, unheard, unseen, unhealed. And we have the we have the power to go back and create that for that other fragment of ourself. And I do a lot of that exact same thing in my meditation. And how do we create safety for all these other pieces of ourself, reintegrate them into ourselves, and then create a new experience? I've got goosebumps. <laughs> it's, I, I can't believe you just said that you do that because I spend so much time in meditation doing that exact same thing. Yeah. Well, cool. What else have we not tapped on? I feel like this has been a very conversation. Well, where can people learn more about you? The best place to learn more about me is at my website, brainbased-wellness.com. And that's where you can find that free video series that'll teach you five simple neural exercises to help you resolve stress, move out of anxiety, maybe help curb any kind of disordered eating patterns and just create a sense of safety in your body. And you can really feel how this work works for you. And then it'll also give you some tools to learn how to assess and reassess what works for your own nervous system. And just to learn a little bit more about the nervous system. So that's at brainbase-wellness.com. Cool. And I'll link that to the show notes. Elizabeth, this has been amazing. Like, I don't know, Thank this you so much. one of my favorite conversations so far. So we'll have to do this again, I think. Yeah, I, think I would love that. We can go, I think there's, you know, I, we went, I think we went pretty deep, but I think that there's also a whole nother level that we can touch on. So we'll do it. Absolutely. <laughs> I would love that.
cool. I'll be honored. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today to this episode with Elizabeth Kristoff. If you want to learn more about her, head over to brainbased-wellness.com. And if you enjoy this episode, please share it with somebody and then also subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to it. And then you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and get the podcast there. So again, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time where we're going to get bit, feel good, and have some fun. Bye for now.